Today's guest is Majid Nawaz. Majid is well known to many of you. We wrote Islam and the Future of Tolerance together. He is a friend and now regular collaborator. There's a film coming out by the same title based on that book, and it's based on a lecture tour we did together in Australia at the beginning of 2016. In any case, Majid is someone who I am proud to call a friend, whose work I deeply support. And once he gets talking, you will understand why. So without further ado, I bring you Majid Nawaz. I am here with Majid Nawaz. Majid, thanks for coming on the podcast. A pleasure. Thanks for having me again. Bringing listeners up to speed, most will know this, but you and I have collaborated in now a variety of ways. We wrote a book together, Islam and the Future of Tolerance, and there will be a movie based on that book coming out next year. I believe it's also called Islam and the Future of Tolerance. So I hear. We'll see how that goes, but it's really been an immense source of gratification for me to collaborate with you, given how fraught our initial meeting was. And this is something we describe in the book and have described on a previous podcast. But relevant to our conversation today, we'll be talking about some of the people who despise us. We both have people who despise us, but a subset of each of those groups are the people who despise each of us for collaborating with the other. That's a weird thing to keep running into. But in any case, there's a lot to talk about here. And in no particular order, I'll just, I'll read you the the topics I have gathered yeah. since I knew we were going to meet in this way. And then we can take it as we see fit. Sure. There was a Southern Poverty Law Center debacle where they grouped you and Ayan along with others as anti-Muslim extremists. We will want yeah. to hit that. There is Syria and the rather obvious failures of Obama's foreign policy. There's the related migrant crisis and the knock-on effects, Brexit being one, Trump being arguably another. Mm. There's Putin, there's the phenomenon of fake news and, and the hacking of the election. Mm. There is ISIS, there's the assassination of the Turkish ambassador, there's the atrocity in Germany at the Christmas market last week. Yeah. My exchanges with Robert Spencer and Shadi Hamid that I yep. know you'll want to comment on. A bunch of other things on this list, actually. So let's get into it. I guess the first place to start for me, let's deal with the Southern Poverty Law Center issue, because sure. that really was just a crime against reason and common decency that we need to get into. Actually, this is a, a similar problem here. There's this general problem of people not being able to figure out who anyone is, right? Mm. Just basic moral confusion about who the good guys are and who the bad guys are, and if they're bad guys, how bad are they? How bad are they compared to the next bad guy? And there's a lot of confusion here that we should try to clear up, so... Yeah, the Prophet Muhammad would tell you that's a sign of the Day of Judgment. <laughs> Let's hope not, for a variety of reasons. A messy preamble, but once again, welcome, Majid, and say whatever you want, but let's zero in on what the Southern Poverty Law Center did to you first. Yes. Well, you know, that that was a, a debacle is the word you, you used, I think, but it was certainly uh, deeply, deeply disappointing to, re to, to receive that news. And, and uh, look, you know, at, at the end of the day, it doesn't affect my reputation uh, insofar as my name and work is relatively 
well known. And so if it did affect my reputation, it's a bit like, you know, it's going it's, it's to deflect. You, you have the Wall Street Journal writing an editorial decrying this decision to list myself and Ayan by name in particular as anti-Muslim extremists. Uh, but then you had a whole bunch of other uh, UK-based outlets, uh, internet and online-based outlets, and, and people at the UN. Uh, the, the, the Karima Badun, who's the head of the UN's cultural rights, special uh, representative for cultural uh, and religious rights at the UN, uh, basically tweeting against the Southern Poverty Law Center and declaring their decision as against my cultural rights to be, uh, to, to be self-critical of my own culture. And so I don't think in the long run it's going to affect my reputation. Here's what I really worry about with this decision. Two things. First of all, it is a clear and present target on our heads. That's number one. So even if my reputation isn't affected among uh, the middle of the line Muslims who are still <clears throat> you know, trying to work out where they stand on the question of Islamism versus conservative Islam versus uh, liberal reforming Muslims, you know, even if it doesn't affect my reputation among them, those hardened extremists don't need any excuses but relish opportunities to target those who are critical of them. And here is another opportunity. What I wrote in my immediate response on the Daily Beast to this decision is that lists are for fascists. Lists are uh, the only people that lose, use uh, lists in this climate are, for example, uh, you and I, I think, have spoken before about this, the lists that were produced uh, to target atheists in Bangladesh, mm. where they were then picked off one by one. That was a list. Uh, and, and so many of them have been uh, killed by extremists since that list was published against atheists. The, the list that was put into the body of Theo van Gogh, uh, naming Ayan as the next person that they were going to target. That's what lists do in this day and age. And the left criticizes McCarthyism. And I just find it astonishing that as critical as the left rightly is of McCarthyism, uh, that it finds it so somehow justifiable for it to adopt the same tactics against what it deems as its enemies. So that's reason number one. I think lists lead to killing people off uh, mm. of, of the lists once they are compiled. The second reason is a long-term reason. And it's not my reputation. It's the reputation of those who are the next Ayan Hirsi Ali, the next uh, 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 Ali Rizvi, uh, the next people who, who are coming up who want to be critical of their own culture, their own heritage, and be, be a bit more uh, introspective about these challenges that we face. And the danger is this puts them off. The danger is that they, that they come to the conclusion that the opportunity cost associated with this work is too high, and so those next voices... Um, uh, don't come to the fore. One of the reasons it's so important for me to stay alive, apart from the fact that I want to stay alive, hmm. is that I, by staying alive and by remaining a highly visible figure speaking out in this way, I'm able to show uh, by my mere existence practically to the up-and-coming generation that you can do this and that in doing so you can be successful, you can attract supporters around you, uh, and you can defy these people who would rather torture and behead those who disagree with them, uh, merely by existing. Uh, but if, if that next generation comes to the conclusion that the opportunity cost associated with that is too high, then it can be off-putting. And let's keep in mind, this is not hyperbole. I'm talking about a climate in which Malala Yousafzai was shot in the head for speaking in this way. Uh, um, I'm talking in a, about a climate in which those atheist bloggers in Bangladesh um, 
uh, have been picked off a list. You know, by but 84 atheist bloggers uh, in 2013 were named on a list. By the end of 2016, 10 of them had been assassinated by jihadist terrorists. Mm. You know, this is the climate we're talking about. So when hope not hate in the United Kingdom, uh, which preceded the Southern Poverty Law Center, it's their equivalent in the UK. When they compiled a similar list that included uh, a Danish author, uh, journalist and Islam critic, Lars Hedegaard, he was later subjected to assassination attempt. Yeah, yeah. Right? And so Southern Poverty Law Center and Hope Not Hate, uh, they should be ashamed of themselves. And I hope and I believe that history will judge them as shamefully as it judges Senator McCarthy. Yeah, well, let's remind people what the Southern Poverty Law Center is, because it's, its name really is kind of opaque. It's a, a civil rights legal firm, essentially, that has specialized since the the early 70s in suing white, racist, Aryan nationalist groups in the United States. So they, they're the ones who sued the, the KKK and other groups nearly out of existence. And it's quite a painful irony, given the recent rise of white racism and identity politics and nationalism during the, the most recent presidential election in the States, that the Law Center has just torched its moral compass and reputation here with this judgment on you and Ayan and perhaps others on that list as anti-Muslim extremists. I mean, it's completely insane, obviously, with respect to you and Ayan, especially with respect to you, because Ayan, you know, for all her obvious virtues in the world, you could at least argue that she is anti-Islam in some basic sense because she's an apostate and she's spoken out, you know, very clearly against Islam in totality in the way that I have. But you are still a Muslim talking to the Muslim community as a Muslim. And to paint you as a anti-Muslim extremist, someone is guilty of, of being, at best, utterly confused over there. But what's amazing is that when, the, when their attention has been called to this problem, they've just doubled down. That's the spirit of the time now. When someone points out an error that you've made, however grievous, you tell them to go fuck themselves and double down. And that's what, that's what this person, Mark Potok, at the Southern Poverty Law Center, the author of this list, has done, apparently, according to an Atlantic article. Yeah, yeah. It's shameful because we need an organization like this to keep watch on the, the real racists and militia nutcases in the U.S. And they, for decades now, have been a resource for journalists to go to and say, is this person crazy and dangerous? And they say, yes, that person's crazy and dangerous. And the story gets published. And it's really astonishing that they did this in the first place and that they have not issued an appropriate mea culpa well, well, at this point. Well, Sam, I, I'll tell your listeners, I'm very, very tempted to set up a crowdsource funding uh, to sue them, to do exactly to them what they did to the KKK. It is inexcusable to put people on a hit list in this way. We've just recounted the number of people that have been killed through such hit lists because they've been deemed anti-Muslim and they've included atheists. Ayan is no different to those uh, 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 10 or so, roughly could be more than 10 by now, atheists who were killed in Bangladesh for exactly the same reason after being designated in exactly the same way. And so I'm, I'm really tempted to sue them and do, do to them exactly what they did to the KKK. I don't see this tactic as any different to McCarthyism. It is as fascist, it is as disgusting. And I genuinely believe history will look back at these people and see that they became the very monster, the very beast 
that they sought to defeat in, in the way that I became an Islamist when I faced neo-Nazi racism growing up. Um, and I, you know, I don't think they're going to back down. Uh, they've had ample time to do it. And the only thing that's stopping me is that uh, unlike in the UK, where libel laws are a lot stricter, here it's very expensive, very costly, and very mm -hmm. difficult. Um, so, but I'm, I'm really seriously tempted to do it just to teach them a lesson. They can't get away with this. But um, anyway, let, let's see what happens with that. Yeah. Needless to say, you'll have the support of many people if you decide to do that. But again, that, that is, you know, talk about opportunity costs. It's, that's a cost, forget the money aside, it's a cost in time and attention on your side. Yeah. And it's all the more galling in that respect. But let's, let's move from that list to a person on it, Robert Spencer, not to be confused with Richard Spencer, who's now perhaps the, the most famous white supremacist in the United States. Robert is a quite a voluble critic of Islam. He runs a website called Jihad Watch. And he and I have never met or spoken publicly, but we've managed to figure out how to skirmish a little bit nonetheless. And this speaks to the larger problem of not being able to figure out who anyone is or how sullied anyone should be by association. And this is a problem that, that you and I both have ourselves. You wound up on that list, as did Robert, and Robert, I'm sure, feels it's no more justified in his case than it is in yours or Ion's. He's associated with people like Pamela Geller, and I don't know how much daylight there is between Robert and Pamela. And I've spoken about this on the podcast before. I don't know how much anyone deserves their reputation for Islamophobia or bigotry or anything else that's unsavory in this yeah. area. Yeah. At one point on my podcast, I spoke about this problem quite transparently, and, and, and I spoke about it with respect to Robert. I said, listen, you know, I, I, I see that Robert has been stigmatized in this way. I have been stigmatized in this way. I know I don't deserve it. I don't presume to know whether Robert deserves it in his case, but I see the cost in this. I see the reputational cost for, for someone like Robert because I have to think long and hard whether I want to have anything to do with him. And I yeah. know people are doing that to me based on what's happened to my reputation yeah. at the hands of people like Glenn Greenwald and all the usual suspects. It is like toxic waste. It just spreads around and, and it's very difficult to clean up and no one has enough time or attention to figure out what the hell's going on. And you just have to pick your, your battles. And so I said this, this really pissed Robert off and he's attacked me for, you know, for not having him on the podcast, for not engaging him. He's attacked me for my collaboration with you. He doesn't trust you. Mm. No surprise there. So it's a mess. And I'm reasonably convinced that there's a fair amount of confusion operating even here locally with Robert and yourself. So for instance, before you answer, I would, I would guess that you think there's probably significant daylight between me and Robert, and you think Robert probably is a bigot or at least you know, deserves some of his reputation for being a bigot. I'm guessing that. And he thinks you're, if not a, a stealth Islamist, someone who I really shouldn't trust as much as I do. Hmm. And that's where we are. I am prepared to believe that both of you are significantly confused about the other. I know Robert is confused about you. I suspect you're returning the favor in this case. And I say that just based on what I've heard Robert say publicly and, and never having engaged him personally. So in any case, I, I tee that up for you. What, what, what's your view of, of the Robert Spencer situation? Let me make this absolutely clear from the outset. I, I don't think Robert, Pam Geller, or anyone belongs on that list because in principle, I oppose lists. 
So to begin with, it's not that I think that Ayan and myself shouldn't be on the list and the others deserve it. Mm. I oppose lists in principle. And in fact, uh, a good few months before the Southern Poverty Law Center's list, I wrote an article in my regular Daily Beast column decrying the hope not hate list. And I did so even though I wasn't named on that list, whereas Zuhdi Jasser, who's an American Republican Muslim reformer, was named on the list, as were a few other Muslims and many non-Muslims. Uh, so the UK version of the SPLC, uh, the Southern Poverty Law Center, did put out a list. I wasn't on it, and I, and I wrote an entire column against it because I oppose lists in principle. And so for that reason, I don't think Robert uh, nor Pam Geller deserve to be on the list. I also don't think Robert Spencer is a racist. I want to make that very clear. There is a huge confusion in this conversation uh, around Islam isn't a race and Muslims are not a race. It's, it's easy when your listeners think of Christianity to understand that. Just as Christianity is not a race and Christians aren't a race, to be critical of Christianity isn't racism. Even to be critical of Christians isn't racism. Um, it may verge sometimes onto bigotry if somebody were to, for example, want to uh, create exceptional models of treatment just for Christians, uh, but that certainly isn't racism. It may be anti-Christian bigotry, but it isn't racism. And so let's park racism out of this conversation because it really doesn't belong here and it's incredibly unhelpful when racism gets confused with a conversation around Islam and or Muslims. Except the, the obvious problem, though, is that there are actual racists who say negative things about Islam and one can at least imagine that they're in part motivated by their racism. If Richard Spencer said something about Muslims, yeah, I would rightly suspect his motivation behind saying it is racism, even if what he's not saying is racist. And that's the difference right. between Robert Spencer and Richard Spencer. Right. Richard Spencer being the founder of the alt-right blog, who is a white supremacist, Robert Spencer sharing very little with him apart from his name. Yeah. Uh, his family name. So I, I think if Richard Spencer said something like Islam is the, is the mother load of bad ideas, to quote a famous neuroscientist, <laughs> right? Um, I would suspect the motivation for why Richard Spencer is saying it is racism. And he's using an argument that doesn't sound racist because he wants to present himself in a form, a, a sterilized form, when really his motivation is racism. Whereas if the famous neuroscientist said that, I have no doubt in my mind or heart his motivation is not racism, right? right. And so, so that's the difference. And in fact, Muslims will understand this. Any Muslim listening knows this. It's entrenched within our history that you can say the right thing for the wrong reasons. Uh, when the Khawarij, which was the first terrorist sect that emerged in Islam, and they killed some of the companions of the Prophet Muhammad, um, uh, when they went up to one of the companions, whose name was uh, Ibn Abbas, and they said to him exactly what ISIS says today. They said, There is no law but God's law. You know, it's the ISIS slogan, right? Mm. And they were kill killing the disciples of the Prophet Muhammad using the very same slogan that ISIS uses today. And the companion of the Prophet said to them in response, he said, The word of truth? Obviously, he'd say that because he's a companion of the Prophet. So I'm not saying here that it is true that God's law must reign, right? I'm just giving you a historical example here. He said, um, The word of truth uh, used for unjust ends. right?" And so it's very important to be able to um, isolate people's uh, racist motivations from something they may be saying which isn't racist. But that, that, that isolation isn't done by speculation. Uh, what I'm not saying is let's open up the doors and let's all speculate on Sam Harris's you know, 
in quotation marks, racist motivations for saying Islam is a mother of bad ideas, because actually it's done by evidence. So Richard Spencer, we know it because he's on camera giving a Nazi salute. We, you know, we've got his writings where he tells us he wants a white ethnostate. So we know the guy is a white supremacist. So we have every reason based on evidence not to trust that his reasons for disliking Muslims are divorced from his reasons for not liking anyone who's not white. And that's, that's clear. With Robert Spencer, not related apart from the, the, the last name, it, it, likewise, therefore, we mustn't confuse when he says things that sound like what somebody else that is racist may be saying, that doesn't mean Robert Spencer's racist. And, and as I said at the outset, nor does it mean anyone deserves to be named on hit lists. If we don't like people, either we should name the organization or we should write columns about their opinions, not compile lists. Mm. So that, those are the two points I wanted to um, just put out there uh, to start with. As for the man himself, you know, the way I look at these things is, he, I mean, he and I will, like with many people, will probably disagree on lots of things. I mean, I, I disagree with him when he says that uh, oaths of allegiance in the Congress should be allowed on any book, including any holy book, except for the Quran. You know, I, that, I think that's, that's a, uh, it, it's a discriminatory practice and it's actually unconstitutional. And therefore, I wouldn't agree with him on that. I, I certainly wouldn't agree with him on his view that, that Bosnia should not be classified as a genocide, um, despite the killings there. Uh, the classification, um, in his view, shouldn't be, it shouldn't be designated as a genocide. I disagree with that. I don't think those disagreements, though they are vehement, I don't think those disagreements mean that I classify him uh, as somehow a racist uh, and, and certainly wouldn't put him on a list. As for how that would mean I go forward and treat somebody like this, I'm always somebody who leaves open the door for change. I engaged with uh, Tommy Robinson. And though it didn't lead to Tommy necessarily changing his individual views, and I never claimed it did, it did lead uh, to Tommy leaving the EDL, which was Europe's largest um, populist anti-Muslim or anti-Islam street protest movement. Um, and so that was a, it was a limited success. The EDL is not the same as it used to be, as it once was with Tommy at its head. And so I, you know, I, I, engagement is always there as an option, but timing and time uh, and how much someone's force fields uh, are diminished by a previous collaboration are all mm. relevant factors to how and when and who you engage with. At this moment in time, if you were to ask me my opinion as to whether I'd be happy to engage and take on even more than what I've taken on by having this conversation with you, and you know the backlash on both sides that that created, I just don't have the energy or the, or the, you know, the space at the moment. I don't have the bandwidth. I don't have the, uh, my, let's say my force fields uh, need some time to replenish mm. before I engage on any other form. Of, you know, I did Tommy Robinson. It led to him leaving the EDL. Then I spoke with you. I'm not, a, I'm not averse to speaking to people. And I think perhaps you've assumed that I'm more critical of somebody like Robert than I may well be. I'm perfectly, you know, let's just say my, uh, my understanding of the importance of dialogue outweighs my, um, my vehement disagreement on exactly, you know, uh, those two areas, for example, that I mentioned. With anyone, I, I, I would speak to Islamists who hold views far worse than Robert does uh, with a view to hoping that the that, that, that dialogue in, in that sense leads them to a more centrist liberal ground. I, I think the purpose of dialogue for me would always be to try and bring people to uh, classical, the classical liberal center. There's one last thing I'd, say, I'd like to say here, and that's to uh, my fellow liberals and my fellow Muslims listening to this, and that is that we have to be proportionate in our condemnation. I vehemently, as I've said, would disagree with Robert on this notion that, that any book can be used as a, for an oath of allegiance 
when swearing somebody in on any official capacity in Congress or the Senate or anywhere, except the Quran. I vehemently disagree with that view. Mm. Uh, but it's not the same as saying that gay people should be executed in an ideal Islamic state. Right. It's not the same as a belief that uh, somehow Jews are like pigs and monkeys. It's not the same as a belief uh, that uh, adulteresses or adulterers should be stoned to death or that limbs should be chopped off for various crimes or that apostates should be killed. Um, and by the way, these beliefs aren't just fairy stories. They are beliefs that are backed up by force in states, not just ISIS. Let's keep that in mind. But Iran and Saudi Arabia and Pakistan, where um, apostates and blasphemy and, and homosexuality are punished. So it's not the same as being a fellow traveler for regimes that actually kill people for these things. And so it's really important to, for my fellow liberals and Muslims to put our disagreements with somebody like Robert Spencer in proportion to the real bad world out there and what's actually going on. The people that are attempting really to destroy our civil liberties are those people that support those sorts of regimes uh, like Iran and Saudi Arabia uh, and, and other Islamist organizations that are non-governmental and definitely jihadist terrorist organizations that make it their business to hunt people like me down and kill me. I've got no doubt Robert Spencer is, is engaged in any of uh, anything similar to that. Mm. So I want to seize on this issue of the swearing in on the Bible or the Quran because it connects to Keith Ellison, I believe, yeah. who Robert has been quite exercised about. But first, I want to clean up a mess that I may have made. I now have echoing in my ear my own use of the word Islamophobia from several minutes ago. And I don't know that the scare quotes of, of derision were conveyed by my tone there, because I, I, I don't want to be one of these people who uses this term as though it were a legitimate one. I, I think this term is, has, yeah. has been consciously engineered to prevent us from talking honestly about Islam, Islamism, jihadism, etc. I just want our listeners to know that I have not caught the virus, or if I did, I've, I've only had it for about five seconds. And I also don't want to have caricatured Robert in my effort to untangle my previous mentionings of him on the podcast. Mm. I have no reason to believe Robert is a bigot and someone I couldn't have a perfectly reasonable conversation with. I simply don't know. And given how much I talk about this issue and how loath I am to keep talking about it, I, like you, feel as a matter of priority, a public engagement with Robert is probably not on the calendar anytime soon, but I, I, I don't mean to stigmatize him in the way we're talking about him. But the, the issue is, again, it comes back to points of confusion about who anyone is. And, and Robert is impressively confused about you, it seems to me. And one reason why he's confused is your recent endorsement of Keith Ellison to head the DNC. And you, you might just say who Keith Ellison is and why you endorsed him. The only things I've ever said about Ellison are from five years ago, where I saw an interview he did on Real Time with Bill Maher, where he was obscurantist about the link between Islam and jihadism in a way that I've come to expect of obscurantists. And he said he didn't seem to say anything reasonable in that context, so I criticized him for that. But beyond that, I haven't paid much attention to who Keith Ellison is. But the fact that you endorsed him recently is one reason why Robert and his minions think I am insane, frankly, for having collaborated with you, because you are now propping up a straight-up Islamist mm -hmm. in Ellison. Perfect segue, actually, Sam, to move on to Keith, because I've just said that I don't think 
Robert's a bigot, but there are things I vehemently disagree, disagree with him on, but also that in principle, there's no boycott. You know, if I had the emotional and intellectual bandwidth and space and my force fields were strong enough, and as I said, they've taken a bit of a battering recently, what with the SBLC ruling and then having before that spoken to you and being battered for that, and before that, having dialogue with Tommy Robinson. Spell that out a little bit more. You're, what you mean by force field, I, I assume, is your reputation as a Muslim among Muslims who you're, you are trying to reach as a reformer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. the resilience, right? Yeah. So the ability to do things that are out of the, uh, our own echo chamber, that are out of the box, uh, that take a conversation to areas where previously Muslims hadn't been comfortable taking them, and then take the flak for that, absorb it, allow the dialogue to move on, to, to allow the conversation to enter new territories and then take it to the next stage. I, I don't think we're anywhere near where we need to be at the moment. Um, but it does take, it takes, it, you know, one takes a hit to their reputation for doing things that are unprecedented. And, um, you know, when I, when I spoke to Tommy Robinson, as I said, was the founder and the leader of the English Defence League, which was an anti-Islam populist street protest movement. When I spoke to him to help him leave the EDL, um, my reputation took a bit of a damage. Um, people like um, the, the British version of Reza Aslan, Mehdi Hassan, have never forgiven me since then. Mm. Uh, and though my objective was very clear, it wasn't to change Tommy Robinson, and we never claimed Tommy's views had changed. It was to have him leave the EDL. And the dismantling, the subsequent dismantling of that organization is a good thing that we must bank. Whether Tommy as an individual changes his views is a secondary thing, which would also have been a good thing, but that we didn't even get the chance to do because the attack was so strong um, after the first thing was achieved. And then, of course, I spoke to you and you know I was called a, your porch monkey. Um, I was called a native informant and the attacks, were, your listeners will be very well aware of what happened after my collaboration with you. And then, of course, the Southern Poverty Law Center listed me as an anti-Muslim extremist. So my, uh, when I say force fields, my resilience, my ability to continue having these dialogues is conditional upon my reputation surviving within Muslim communities and within the left in particular uh, as an honest interlocutor. If you want to change a community or communities as I want to do, then your reputation among them needs to at least, you know, on a scale of one to 10, be around four or five. Mm. <laughs> Otherwise, there's no point, right? I'm not interested in winning philosophical or intellectual arguments, as though I am, as much as I am interested in bringing change to where I believe a large part of, not all of, but a large part of the problem resides and where I think I can be most useful. Mm. And so in that sense, it's just not possible nor plausible at the moment for me to engage in any form of rapprochement with somebody like Robert. And also sometimes sometimes personality gets involved as well. I don't think that Robert's in the state of mind at the moment that you and I were when we spoke. I don't think no. that he's in the frame of mind where the principle of charity will be employed in a conversation. Um, but I think he's more like where you and I were when we first met. And I don't mean to sound patronizing when I say that. I genuinely, yeah. from what I hear and read that he's saying about me, it's going to take him a while to realize that what I'm about to say next about Keith Ellison is, met, is meant in the, with the best of intents and the, honest, the most honest of intentions. Um, and, and that's going to take him, I think, a while just to see me continue the work I'm doing before he uh, applies such a principle of charity to me. Um, but, but this allows me to move on to Keith Ellison. Mm. So as I said, I'm not averse to actually engaging with anyone. And as I engage with Tommy Robinson, um, and as I, in principle, wouldn't uh, be averse to engaging with somebody like Robert Spencer. Um, I likewise am not averse to engaging with somebody like Keith Ellison. And for me, there's no difference. Whether somebody disagrees with me and I disagree with them vehe vehemently on the 
uh, anti-Islam spectrum of things or on the too much Islam kind of Islamist uh, spectrum of things, I see them as one and the same, that it's a spectrum of engagement. And my aim will be to bring everybody to what I believe is a classically liberal, human rights grounded, critical and skeptical center that is also muscularly liberal, though. The only thing we mustn't be skeptical about is our commitment to pluralism, human rights, and liberal values. Um, it's the only thing that we are certain of, and that is that nothing is certain, and that people making truth claims are not true. And so it, my, my reasons for actually uh, extending an olive branch to somebody like Keith Ellison are multifaceted. And, and the first one, I think, is clear. It, it, it's what I've just, everything I've just said, that actually because I've engaged with the anti- Islam, uh, well, let's say anti-Islam speakers and activists. Uh, now, for a while, I think it's probably about time to balance it out and to engage on the Islamist side again and on the Muslim side again. And so that's a pragmatic reason, reason number one. And it, it's that balance that deters the future SBLC from listing me again. So that's reason number one. I'd say reason number two is uh, a bit more political. Uh, I'll give you an analogy with the mayor of London, Sadiq Khan. He, very much like Keith Ellison, was um, a politician. Now, let's be fair to politicians. And so I'm going to caveat what I'm about to say. Um, it's not that they are bad human beings, but all politicians are opportunistic. It's the nature of the game. Um, and as I say, it's not to say they're bad human beings. The nature of politics is it, it forces you. That's the job description. You have to seek out an opportunity mm. that you can capitalize and exploit for political gain. And that's how you maneuver, like a chess game. Politicians' lives are like a chess game. And so by definition, whether they want to be or not, they have to be opportunistic. Otherwise, by definition, they wouldn't be politicians. And so like um, Keith Ellison, the now mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, was an opportunistic politician. Um, before being mayor, he was a, uh, a low-ranking local member of parliament in an area called Tooting in London. And most of his support base, because he has a British-Pakistani Muslim background, opportunistically much of his support base to get elected came from the Muslim community. But if you're going to get elected from the Muslim community in this day and age, your opportunism is going to reflect uh, where Muslims are when they are surveyed. And you and I have spoken about this in our book, um, in our collaboration, hmm. where Muslims are when they are surveyed isn't exactly liberal right. um, in, in, in everything, right? In 100% of things. They may be when it comes to things like uh, whatever, immigration and uh, racism, but they may not be when it comes to things like gay rights. And so that's just the nature of being a politician who's relied up until now on that vote bank to build up a, a bit of a support base. Now, Sadiq Khan did that and Keith Ellison did that. And what we're lacking on the Muslim, liberal and, and, and even left uh, uh, side these days around the conversation uh, around Islamism and Islam uh, is strong leadership. Uh, like uh, uh, Keith Ellison, the mayor of London used to be pretty much involved in sectarian Muslim politics before he became mayor. But he transformed, um, incredibly so by all accounts, both, both his enemies uh, and his supporters. But, and uh, by the way, I, I was somebody who was critical of him, the mayor of London, mm. uh, when he was a Tooting MP. And, and he was critical of me. He's called me on television. and He's called Quilliam, the Quilliam people, quote, Uncle Tom's. Um, for which he had to later apologize while running uh, for, for office as mayor of London. He had to make a public apology for using that racial, racial slur. Um, and so it's, it, it, when I now speak of him in the terms I'm about to, it's as somebody who was on the wrong side of the fence of this man. Uh, but by all accounts, including London's Jewish community, the mayor of London now is doing a stellar job. He's performing uh, better 
than uh, than everyone expected mm. as as mayor of London. And there are some reasons for that. And it's what it is is when you take a opportunistic, pragmatic politician who is not an Islamist but happens to be a Muslim, who happens to be religious, and you and I have spoken in our collaboration about the difference between traditional Muslims who are perhaps conservative in their social values, even if they are liberal politically, um, and, uh, and, and, yet, uh, and who are not Islamists. When you take a politician like that, a religious Muslim who is politically liberal, and, but by being religious it means that they are probably socially a bit conservative, and you thrust them into the mainstream, their opportunism remains consistent. What, what changes is the vote bank they begin appealing to. And so Sadiq Khan had to suddenly appeal to a far broader range of potential electors than just the Muslim sectarian backing he used to enjoy as a member of parliament for Tooting. And I predicted that the same would happen with Keith, uh, Keith Ellison, that, that suddenly when he realizes he's got to appeal to a far larger vote bank uh, that, is, um, uh, that is opportunistic Muslim politicking uh, would give way the opportunism would remain. And again, caveat that this isn't, I'm not using the word opportunistic here in a, as a pejorative. Right. Um, and, and, and that he would have to appeal to a far broader vote bank. And I think the same thing that happened to Sadiq Khan would happen to Keith Ellison. Why is that important that that happens? I think that's important because, as I said, what we are severely lacking on the left and among Muslims and uh, uh, among genuine liberals is leadership. And I think that the sorts of people that can lead are the sorts of people that need to be able to carry people with them. So we need to be able to identify somebody who's an opportunist, not in the pejorative sense, who, um, who is able to say to people, I came from where you came from, and then drag them to the classically liberal center that I want them to drag them to. Now, like Sadiq Khan, there are a few signs that Keith Ellison is able to do that. One of them is that both Sadiq Khan, who's now the mayor of London, and Keith Ellison, when faced with a choice on gay marriage equality laws, despite their conservative Muslim backgrounds telling them that they should vote against this, both voted for it. Mm. Um, and, and what an Islamist can't bring themselves to do that. An Islamist believes that, that, would, that would, that's the cardinal sin. That's known as shirk. That's changing God's law for man's law. That's the very thing that makes an Islamist is their fight that they're prepared to die for, that God's law is, uh, takes primacy. And the minute you switch God's law for man's law, that's the difference between an Islamist and effectively uh, the rest of the world. Um, uh, that's the very thing they've defined has gone wrong with the world. An Islamist would never vote for gay marriage equality because as we elaborated upon in our collaboration, to an Islamist's mind, legislation and religious law are one and the same thing. Whereas to other Muslims who are the vast majority, legislation can be separated from God's law. So you can at once believe as a normal uh, conservative Muslim, which I'm not, you can at once believe that homosexuality would be a sin for you while still voting for others to choose whether they believe it's a sin for them and therefore giving them the freedom to choose that. Uh, and that would be uh, somebody who's religiously conservative yet politically liberal. Mm. That, that is a, a consistent stance for non-Islamist Muslims to take. And so voting on gay marriage equality is a kind of litmus test, and um, uh, as would be things like you know, normal consensual uh, uh, sexual relationships outside of marriage, uh, you know, uh, voting on the legalization of that would be a litmus test for um, uh, whether somebody is an Islamist or a Muslim who's engaged in politics. Well, wouldn't it be rational to worry that a stealth 
Islamist would be able to pass those litmus tests in the interests of remaining essentially hidden. There's this concern that there are Islamists who are trying to get into power and are willing to sacrifice their apparent Islamism, or that they're willing to make their Islamism so non-apparent to do that, that they might be able to vote for gay marriage, for instance. Let's understand another thing here, that jihadists believe in going deep undercover because they're at war. So what matters for a jihadist isn't the proselytization, isn't convincing somebody of their ideological position. What matters, uh, except obviously where they are in Muslim-majority countries mm -hmm. where they're trying to recruit people. In the West, what matters for a jihadist is pretending they are more liberal than me. It's pretending that, in fact, they're debauched so that nobody suspects them. And yet when the time comes, they engage in an attack and that people are attacked uh, from where they never expected it, from the guy that owns the strip club, for example, right? right? And so that's what matters uh, for the jihadist, so that they are completely undetected. For the Islamist, it's the opposite. An Islamist doesn't believe that they are actively engaged in, in a physical war with the West. They believe they're engaged in an ideological war. Those two things are very different. When you believe you're engaged in an ideological war, there are some principles that are non-negotiable. Otherwise, you've, you've given up in the ideological war. So just, just to drill down on this, so you believe there, there is no third alternative, which is an Islamist who, by stealth, will get into a position of power along with, obviously, a sufficient number of other Islamists, and then turn the tables politically, essentially nonviolently. So, so they're not jihadists. They're not just waiting for the, a moment to strike. They're waiting for a moment to strike politically. An organization like CARE, for instance, strikes me this way, at least some of the time, where they're, they're often tipping their hand, they're saying semi-Islamist things, and so that's why I, I see in them a less-than-liberal organization. But I also at least imagine that I detect a fair amount of dissembling there, where they're not actually being candid about what their actual views are. They're not trying to win a, a war of ideas purely on the merits of their Islamism. They're trying to they're playing a double game. They're, they have a certain verbiage designed for export on CNN, and then they have the way they presumably talk behind closed doors. That's what worries me, and I'm sure that's what worries Robert Spencer about a person like Keith Ellison, that he's actually more doctrinaire than you might be allowing for based on his, in this case, supporting gay marriage. Well, so there is that third option, and they, they do exist as well. We have, uh, whether it's CARE or organizations in the UK, like the MAB, the Muslim Association of Britain, there are brotherhood-founded and backed organizations that seek what we call entryism. Um, in fact, my, 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 my critique of entryism in the British context is one of the reasons the SPLC, when they doubled down, listed me as an anti-Muslim extremist, because we've actually witnessed entire institutions, such as schools, um, in Birmingham, uh, being taken over by these entryists. And uh, the, 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 in, in the end, the national body that monitors education, known as Ofsted, the Office for Standards in Education, had to intervene and sack the entire board of governors of a school mm. um, and uh, bar them from ever standing as, as school governors ever again, because they, this whole entry, is, it was major front page news in the UK, that, carried by the Times. And in that British context, I was talking about it, and the Southern Poverty Law Centre decided that must mean I'm an anti-Muslim extremist, even though um, by, de by, by, by the implication, the Office for Standards in Education in the UK is also uh, anti-Muslim. 
doesn't make sense. But there, there, there is that category. We have a, the, the borough of Tower Hamlets that was taken over, mm. um, backed by the, by the um, uh, IFE, Islamic Forum Europe, and, and other Islamist groups based in Tower Hamlets. And the, the, the mayor of that borough had to be struck down by a judge in court and barred from ever standing from office again, using a law that had been originally devised in an ancient law that was, uh, that was devised to resist Catholicism during the th times of the Reformation. It was a law called undue spiritual influence. And the judge had to resurrect this law to kick out an elected mayor in the borough of Tower Hamlets um, so that he didn't, because he, would say, he said he was coming under the undue spiritual influence of Muslims and Muslim groups. So that's, you know, and I've written about these things in my columns. I do not think Keith Ellison is one of those. And I know the man, and I know an Islamist, I can smell an Islamist from a mile away. I used to be one myself, and I went to prison for being one. I can, I can, I can assure you that Keith Ellison is not an Islamist. Mm. Um, there may be, in this. in fact, I, just as strongly, I can assure you there probably certainly is uh, a blind spot that he has towards people like that. Everyone has cultural blind spots. Um, I'd suggest that somebody like Robert Spencer has a cultural blind spot to people who are convincing him not to uh, classify Bosnia as a genocide. You know, everyone has these blind spots because they're more worried about some things than the other, so they don't dedicate as much thought to those other things. Mm. Um, and what I'm hoping is Sadiq Khan had those blind spots. What I'm hoping is that somebody like Keith Ellison can become somebody like Sadiq Khan. Um, when you get somebody like that in position, they become the best line of defense against those entryists uh, because they're able to then see them and spot them coming from a mile away. Keith Ellison knows. He knows um, that there are Islamists within our community. I've seen him speak about this in the past uh, because they've sometimes called him, they've decried him for being too liberal um, because of some of the stances he's taken in, in Congress. And the fact that he pulled out of the Muslim American Society's annual conference where he was scheduled to deliver their keynote address and the Muslim American Society has ties with um, uh, some Islamist-backed organizations, has hosted some uh, anti-Semitic speakers like Muhammad Ratib ibn Nabulsi, Mm. Who, who has said, I'm going to quote to you, uh, he said, homosexuality leads to the destruction of the homosexual. That's why, uh, brothers, homosexuality carries the death penalty. Now, this is a speaker that was scheduled to speak at a conference that Keith Ellison was scheduled to speak at, and he pulled out. So he knows uh, the political cost of being associated with these people. And what I'm hoping is that uh, an opportunistic politician that he is, um, when he sees that his vote base is significantly broadened, uh, that he realizes that there are more votes in uh, the liberal side of this debate than there are in appealing to extremists and their backers, like this sort, sort of speaker that we've just quoted. Um, and then he uh, acts as the front line of defense against these people, as Sadiq Khan now is. Let, let me just say that Sadiq Khan, who prior to becoming the mayor of London, called Quilliam an Uncle Tom, has now been called an Uncle Tom by the very types of people that were his audience when calling Quilliam Uncle Tom's. Right. You know, the tables have turned on him. And when that happens, these people, not just for politically opportunistic reasons, they also, their emotions get invested in realizing, hold on a minute, you know, when you're put on the line like that and called an Uncle Tom or a native informant, you start realizing how ridiculous these sorts of slurs are. And, and it puts a distance between you and the ignoramuses who are using this type of language. And I think that's what's going to happen to Keith Ellison. And listen, if I'm wrong, I'll, you know, I, I'm somebody who follows his conscience and, and, and really doesn't care, right? I, I, if he starts pandering to homophobes, if Keith starts pandering to Islamists and justifying their views, I'll call him out on it. And it will hurt him a lot more if I call him out on it because I've just endorsed him. Right. And so that's, you know, that's, that's where I stand on this. I don't think he's an Islamist, but I'm hopeful. And if I'm not engaged 
in changing members of my own communities and other fellow liberals and those on the left. If not, I'm not engaged in changing them and bringing them to the to the, the classically liberal center, I'm not sure, not sure what I should be doing. I mean, that's what I set out to do. This is my job. It's my job to engage people like Keith Ellison. Yeah, you know? yeah. And as I've said before, I believe on this podcast, one of the most depressing things that has come my way by virtue of collaborating with you is to see the evidence of just how hard your job is. This goes to the reason why you wouldn't be so eager to share a stage with Robert Spencer, however unjustly he might be stigmatized in the Muslim community or any other community. You have a certain amount of capital, to my eye, not nearly enough, in the eyes of your fellow Muslims. And perhaps speak to that. I think we can table Ellison for the moment. I, I would put your Islamist detector against anyone's, and so your confidence in him gives me confidence, that, but I'm also confident that if he proves otherwise, you will disavow him. And I think someone like Spencer should be confident in that fact. So, And let's not, and let's not put it, look, he's a, he's a religious Muslim, which I'm not, right? And clearly, you know, I'm engaged in reform, the, the reform of Islam today. And so we, he and I will disagree on some things, but you and I, through our collaboration, I think I've come to recognize the difference between a religious conservative Muslim and an Islamist. So that's important also to remember that he may say some religiously conservative things, but I'd still want to engage with him. My red line would be if he starts saying Islamist things or starts openly backing Islamists again. And every indication so far, like his pulling out of this conference, is that he's actually backing away from them. Yeah. I should just say before we move on that I think the political wisdom of backing him to head the DNC certainly could be questioned. I, you know, I would say yeah. that in the aftermath of Trump, probably the last thing the left needs by way of regrouping is to fall deeper into any form of identity politics. And insofar as Ellison is likely to engineer that, which he certainly seems to my eye to be, that strikes me as the wrong way to go. I mean, what we need is a new center. I think the left is more or less destroyed post-Trump. And what we need is a a center which is sane and liberal in the true sense and committed to the principles of free speech. And the people who should no longer be paid attention to, the sorts of people on the left who would call you and Uncle Tom, you know, whether they're Muslim or not, for collaborating with me or the sorts of geniuses who wrote that list at the SPLC, these are people who don't need to be empowered at this point. And insofar as Ellison fits into a predictable slot in, in that machinery. Mm. Islamism aside, that may be the wrong direction to go. Yeah, yeah. This is where I, I don't disagree with anything you just said. And this is where I had to weigh out the advantages of, of winning over a Muslim for liberal politics and having him ditch his Islamist uh, backers and the need for a, uh, a classically liberal uh, uh, leader. And, and the two here clearly you know, one is more likely than the other. It's more likely Keith Ellison backs away from Islamists as a result of his bid uh, than he does ditch identity politics. Mm. I'm hoping he does both. And I would certainly encourage him to do both because I've, I agree with everything you've just said there about what we do need going forward. Um, but I had to make a choice because I also want to help reach out, like I reached out to Tommy Robinson on the anti-Islam side. I need to be able to reach out to people like Keith and help them move to the, you know, I say help, I mean, you know, who am I? But, you know, do whatever I can to help them move to the uh, to the classically uh, well, sorry, away from Islamism in this context. Mm. So, so I hope both happen. And if they don't, 
you know, it's, I, I, I kind of reassured myself that even if he doesn't do number two, which is move away from identity politics, which in my endorsement column I made very clear that I hope he does, you know, I said that the future isn't in identity politics. Even if he doesn't do that, um, I, I reassured myself and, and, and kind of assuaged myself in this way that I don't think that the chair of DNC will be the next president of the United States anyway. Yeah. Back to that, the original point, which is, and again, I, you know, I don't, I don't look over your shoulder on a day-to-day basis, but from what I see, you have what I've often described as the hardest job in the world, and it's the fault of what is the, the status quo in the Muslim community in terms of honest discourse on these topics, the level of identity politics you are expected to endorse, and the unself-conscious use of this term Islamophobia as a almost like a magic spell uttered to ward off any intelligent criticism of doctrine and its link to violence in the world. It's an incredibly difficult job. And again, someone like Robert Spencer doesn't appreciate all of the balls you have to keep in the air in order to even be able to have a conversation with the, quote, Muslim community. What does success or progress look like on your side? And, and are, you, are you seeing any progress? Take a, a five-year snapshot of your career and tell me how things look to you. So five years ago, Sam, uh, five years ago, you and I weren't on, on, talking, ter- in talk, on talking terms in this way. Um, and therefore, I think, I hope you agree, this is a huge milestone in the kind of future that we have both envisaged and hoped for, moving away from identity politics, moving towards rationalism, skepticism, and, a, and an empowered, liberal, uh, uh, human rights-grounded center. But it's, it's a milestone for us, I would agree. I love this. But if anything, I would imagine it hasn't helped your standing among generic Muslims, and it probably has harmed it. Am, am I right in in the short that? In the short term, and not in the long term. And the reason I say not in the long term is that the signs are already there, that um, there are people gathered around me that wouldn't be gathered around me five years ago, some of whom the final straw for them was reading our collaboration and mm-hmm. deciding that they wanted to throw their weight in behind me. So let's take uh, the current director of Quilliam UK. Adam Dean, who used to be a member of Al-Mahajirun. Al-Mahajirun is a banned and now banned terrorist organization. The leader, the UK leader for Al-Mahajirun is in prison in the UK under terrorism-related charges for swearing allegiance to ISIS. Al-Mahajirun, just to be very clear for your listeners, is the group that morphed into the ISIS recruitment machine in the UK and sent anywhere between 500 to 2,000 British Muslims to join ISIS. Hmm. Adam, before ISIS was ever conceived, uh, and therefore he's completely exonerated of that chapter in our history. Uh, before ISIS was ever conceived, he was a member of Al-Mahajirun and had left them, but was still on a journey. And was, in, in fact, like you and me, I last saw Adam over a dinner, which didn't end well at all. He was very critical of me and Quilliam and what we were doing. He spent the entire dinner arguing with me mm. and, and, and effectively without saying it, calling me an Uncle Tom and a sellout. And he didn't say it, but th- that, was, that was a tone and the implication throughout the conversation. And I left that conversation so disheartened, this was roughly five years ago, actually, I left so disheartened that I I never reached out to him again. It was so hostile. Um, And Adam said to me, only, uh, we had an office uh, Christmas lunch, and he said to me, this is about two weeks ago now, he said, you know, if only you'd reached out to me again, uh, because um, you left me with more to think about in that conversation than you realized. 
And then he gave me some examples where, where I left him to think. But then he read our collaboration. And uh, over the course of the five years that I hadn't reached out to him again, um, he'd been on his own journey. And the final thing was he read our collaboration and that convinced him that actually this was the way forward. And now he's leading Quilliam in the UK. He's the head of Quilliam UK. Mm. Um, uh, and here's somebody who's rooted in the community. He's got his own network in the Muslim community. He's got his own presence. He's of Turkish origin, a British citizen, born and raised. Um, and, 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 you know, that's just one example. There are the, the, form, the main mosque in the UK is the, it's known as the Regent's Park Mosque. It's got a golden dome outside Regent's Park in London. It's the main central mosque in the UK. Uh, the former imam of that mosque is now at Quilliam, engaged in reform, reform work. Uh, there are a few examples like that where five years ago I wouldn't have had such people from within the heart of the community, like the imam of the main mosque of the UK, mm. who's an Egyptian, uh, I must add here, a graduate of Sunni Islam's highest school of learning, the University of Al-Azhar in mm. Egypt. He's, he's born and raised Egyptian. Um, and he currently leads the Friday sermons and prayers at the Egyptian Cultural Center next door to the Egyptian embassy in London. He's still a prayer leader. And the guy works full time at Quilliam. And so... Uh, these are the seeds of change that will go on to bear the fruits of change in the future. And, and I'm able to think in, in long terms in this way and remain optimistic because I remember as a 16-year-old, when I first joined the Islamist group, Hizbut Tahrir, that I did, going around trying to convince Muslims that we must resurrect a caliphate. And nobody had heard of what this caliphate was. No Muslim knew what a caliphate was. Mm -hmm. It was like we were we were speaking, we were speaking to a brick wall. No one understood. And um, we, we continued and, you know, continued to proselytize and preach for this caliphate to a point now where even most of the world, including non-Muslims, know exactly what a caliphate is because of ISIS. Um, I've been punched outside of mosques at the age of 16, 17 by Muslims telling me, how dare you try and politicize our religion? I've been physically assaulted by religious Muslims with big beards mm. who, have been, who have found it objectionable that I've been standing outside a mosque convincing them that you must work with us to, to re-establish a caliphate. But over the course of 15 years of me being inside his Tahrir, I've seen how we were able to change, uh, shift Muslim public opinion. And what that does with that hindsight, that benefit of wisdom, and putting the skills, the transferable skills of activism at the disposal now of this work that I'm engaged in, I'm, I'm able, I believe, I'm able to recognize the early signs of change, even though you know, it's, we're talking in generational terms here, yeah? Mm. So I don't want anyone to get excited and think tomorrow there's going to be a great change, right? But I, I see those early seeds of change, and I'm, I, I remain um, optimistic. Mm. So as a counterpoint to that optimism, really, or even a counterpoint to that aspiration of change, I want to remind you of my conversation with Shadi Hamid on the podcast, yes. because yes. he's written this very interesting and influential book, around the concept of Islamic exceptionalism. He, he yeah. has just bitten the bullet here and owned that Islam is different, and we shouldn't expect the same kinds of reform that we have witnessed in the Christian West yeah. over yeah. the course of centuries. He and I spoke on the podcast. Those who haven't heard that can hear us talk for at least two hours about this. And you know, while we didn't agree about everything, I found him a quite the congenial guest, and he's someone who I think you could have a very good conversation with in the future, but as a surrogate for that at the moment, tell me what you think of this concept of Islamic exceptionalism, as he describes ah, it's, it. It's, I, I see, Shadi's a lovely guy. He's in fact one of the nicest uh, guys who I don't agree with. Mm -hmm. 
Right? Yeah. He's a lovely guy, and you know, I've got respect for the man. Uh, but it's not true. I mean, th- this theory is, frankly, you know, um, it, it, no uh, serious scholar uh, of, of Islamic... Uh, uh, I'm going to choose my words carefully here, because Shadi is a serious scholar, mm. but of, of, of Islamic uh, uh, jurisprudence uh, who has studied... Islam at that level of, say, the Azhari um, Imam that we just spoke of, Sheikh Salah Ansari, who's the Egyptian who's with us at Quilliam, um, would argue this. In fact, they're all aghast. The scholars at Quilliam are aghast when they hear Shadi speak in right. this, these terms. To be fair to Shadi, Shadi is a political scientist at Brookings, and he's not, yes. he doesn't bill himself as a, a theologian. Exactly. He's making this exactly. Yes. Which is why I was choosing my words carefully. I don't want to insult the man. He's a lovely guy. And he knows I disagree with him on this. And he said so the same on your show when, when speaking of me. He knows we disagree, but we're both, we both get on and I'd love to have the opportunity. To sit. He's somebody who I would certainly sit with in the near future to help get through this. And just to, before I get to his views and his theory, just to give you an anecdote, I bumped into him before his book was published. I've had the book as a review copy um, before it was published. And I handed him our collaboration, Islam and the Future of Tolerance. And I said, for the life of me, please, Shadi, read this before you go and publish this theory of yours. Um, and he, he, uh, I, I think he only read it before coming on the podcast with you. Right. Right. Now, the first thing I want to say is his reaction on the podcast with you when asked about the book was so telling. I think he learned stuff in that book um, in our collaboration, uh, that touched him and spoke to him as the kind of Islam he personally adheres to. Um, because if you, if your listeners go back to your podcast with Shadi and he's like, I was reading this book of yours with Majid and I was thinking, huh, yeah, wow. That's literally how he spoke of the book. If Shadi had read this and had the opportunity, if I had had the opportunity to engage with Shadi before he published this theory, um, uh, I, I hope things would have been different and I hope things will be different in the future because this theory is just doesn't stand up to scrutiny. Let me get to, to some of the points. I mean, the first thing I'd say is it's, in, it's internally contradictory. Um, what he said to you on the podcast is internally contradictory and he doesn't adhere to it himself. At one hour six into your podcast with him, when you ask him a question um, about Islam, uh, 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 which puts him in a position, what, what position where he has to defend Islam. He, he uses the word, Islam is pragmatic. Um, which, which in a sense, if, you, if the minute you say Islam is pragmatic, you're arguing against exceptionalism. Right. Um, uh, and then to, to go on beyond that, the Islam he adheres to himself, and actually when he was reflecting on my collaboration with you, he, he practically said the Islam he adheres to is the kind of Islam I was speaking of in my collaboration with you. Again, if it's good enough for Shadi, it's good enough for any Muslim, right? So even the fact that he doesn't adhere to an exceptional version of Islam himself indicates philosophically in principle. And when you're talking in philosophical terms, if something's possible for you, it's possible for anyone in principle. And I think that's the important thing, that it's not that it might take longer for the average Egyptian to get to where the American Muslim like Shadi is, but there's nothing impossible in metaphysical terms for that average Egyptian to get there as well. Because if Shadi can get there with his own Islam, then anyone else can get there too. I think the, his concern was that he felt he had no real basis to say that someone should get there. He doesn't feel that his version is right. There was a kind of moral relativism lurking at the bottom of, of his self-criticism here, where he felt like, you know, this is how I want to live. You know, I don't hate gay people. I don't, I don't want to hate gay people. I don't want to oppose gay marriage, therefore, but I feel no basis upon which to argue that you should be in favor of gay marriage as a Muslim. 
there was kind of a disempowerment to his morality, his values are not grounded in anything he can truly defend. The one thing he was willing to go to the mat for, which I pointed out, that this, this seems to be a, a contradiction, is that he thinks there's some true primacy to democracy and the democratic process. So you must yeah. respect the outcome of a, of a valid democratic process almost as a truth that is as true as, as anything you find in human affairs. So if, if people voted to end human life, well, we would have to live with the, the consequences of that vote. It supplies its own reductio ad absurdum. But in any case, he, he didn't want to argue, as you do, that there's a place to stand where liberalism can be shown to be better than its rivals in the end. And, and yeah. respect for free speech yeah. and freedom of thought is, is simply better than any dogmatic or doctrinaire or religious alternative. Better for him, though, isn't it? It is, yeah. But, yeah. He, but again, he, there's something tissue thin about his attachment to it there because he, does, he feels like he can't defend it. Yeah, so, so he's argued that he is the way he is. When I say it's better for him, it actually isn't just a jibe. It relates to his theory. He's argued that he is the way he is because a set of specific circumstances that are contingent to his history and growing up as an American Muslim and that there's nothing inevitable uh, for the Indonesian or Egyptian or Pakistani Muslim to go through that same historical experience to arrive at the same place that he is at. But actually, that in itself is an admission that doctrine, that Islamic doctrine, is contingent to historical circumstances. And therefore, again, there's nothing exceptional in the doctrine. It is simply, and all doctrine, I think you and I, when we collaborated, I spoke about the Council of Nicaea decision um, to adopt Christianity as the official religion of the Holy Roman Empire. If not for that historical decision, Christianity would not be what we know it is today. Um, all doctrine and, and the evolution of each and every religion has been contingent to a set of specific historical circumstances. And so what it tells us is that it, it's not, the doctrine isn't exceptional at all. What, what, what it tells us actually is we've got to look to those historic circumstances to see how those come about and whether, whether they will lead to liberalism. And actually, therefore, ultimately, it comes down to the age-old argument between people like Professor John Gray at the LSE uh, and, and progressives. What, does history have a generally progressive trajectory? That's the real conversation. Not, is Islam exceptional? If we accept that Islamic doctrine is contingent to a set of historical uh, circumstances, then the real question is, does history move generally in a progressive di direction? Now, Professor John Gray at the LSE would argue it doesn't. He, he argues there's nothing inherent to history that it moves generally towards a more enlightened and liberal direction. I accept I'm using those two terms interchangeably mm. there. I don't agree. I think it does. I think the exceptions that, that Professor John Gray brings about, he talks about World War II, for example, they are but blips in the long history of, of the human being. They are not the norm. Uh, in fact, there's been bloodshed. There's been a lot of bloodshed. But actually, if you look at the relative bloodshed today compared to what our history has been full of, um, and if you look at kind of the, the direction of travel, it's hard not to argue that we are moving in a more civilized and enlightened and liberal mm -hmm. direction. And I use those three interchangeably because I would, because I deem them one and the same thing. Yeah. I would just add a third alternative here, which is yeah. convergent with your, your position, but slightly different, which is whether or not history, in fact, does move in the direction of liberalism and, and intellectual honesty and reason and enlightenment in, in every sense, whether or not it does or is seeming to at the moment, it should. I mean, this yeah. is, it, it is right to want that it move in this direction. And 
we can argue strongly for all the good that will come if it does and all the, the harm that will be prevented if it does. And Indeed. And that's the, and therefore the case for activism as well. Uh, and, and I suppose the final comment I'd make on Shadi's theory is the idea that it, that it, um, it, that it hasn't happened. And the fact is that we, we are already seeing signs. Um, you know, uh, people like the Brotherhood equivalent in Tunisia, uh, Rashid Ghanoushi's Hezb al-Nahda movement, which was a franchise of the Brotherhood. Um, they have done what Tony Blair did with the UK Labour Party. It's an analogy I give because of how uh, how relevant it is to the future of the party. Tony Blair ditched Clause 4 in the Labour Party's manifesto, which was the clause committing the Labour Party to socialism. Of course, Jeremy Corbyn has brought it back in. Um, but Ghanoushi in Tunisia, with Hezbollah, ditched the clause that said Sharia had to be a basis for law. So that's their very own Clause 4 moment. And Ghanoushi is probably the most, uh, uh, let's say, least Islamist of the Islamists out there. Uh, and, and I would classify Ghanoushi as post-Islamist. I wouldn't say he's liberal, I'd say he's post-Islamist, which is a stage in between. And the fact that you've got Islamist organizations like this doing that, the fact that you've got the majority of the Egyptian people not voting for the Brotherhood in the first round of elections in that presidential race, but actually voting against the Islamist candidate, um, it indicates to me, even though the Brotherhood won, due to the peculiarities of the Egyptian system, uh, a bit like, you know, here in the US with the Electoral College, you don't have to get the majority of the votes to win the Electoral College. Um, I think that these things indicate that actually it can happen. It's not even that it hasn't happened yet. It's, it's we're in the thick of it. And that's one of the reasons we can't see it. So I just encourage Shadi to do two things. One, uh, speak to those theologians who happen to share the Islam that's good enough for him, but happen to be theologians instead of political scientists. Those like Sheikh Salah Al-Ansari at Quilliam, who's an Egyptian, who I'm sure would speak to Shadi and say, no, there's nothing exceptional about the doctrine itself. And the other thing I'd say to Shadi is, is that, you know, uh, uh, let's, let's, uh, let's, we can strike a middle line between neoconservative military aggression and, uh, and, and isolationism uh, when it comes to speaking of our liberal values. And actually, I think that isolationism shouldn't be a liberal trait. It's actually originally a, a very parochial right-wing trait. Um, and actually liberals understand that one of the things that makes us enlightened liberals who see people through the lens of humanism, first and foremost as human beings, is that therefore it means that they deserve the very same treatment that we expect for ourselves because they are human beings first and foremost. So yeah. I don't see how one can be a liberal and not want for other human beings to share and enjoy the same liberal benefits that we enjoy in terms of rights um, and uh, in terms of freedoms. So I think that it's, it, I think that's inseparable from uh, a humanistic outlook to life, really. Mm -hmm. I certainly agree with all that. The one caveat I would place there is that there is something to the claim of Islamic exceptionalism, just insofar as that the doctrine of Islam is different in some particulars than the doctrine of any other religion. And yeah. those particulars, as you, know, you and I have spoken about before at great length and in our book, those particulars pose some special challenges, which yeah. we have to figure out how to navigate. But I, I would like to just, as a counterpoint to all of the, the hopeful noises you just made, I would like to just offer this. This is kind of a gut reaction to that I know millions upon millions of people are having to things like what we just saw in Germany, the, the recent atrocity at mm. the Christmas market, right? So you have a, a Tunisian immigrant who murders a truck driver and runs his truck into a crowd of people. And I think it's 
was it 12 who were who died in the end? I, I don't know if any. About 50 injured, yeah. Okay. Roughly, roughly. So you see something like this, and this is ha- happening in the context of this wave of immigration coming into Europe by virtue of, largely by virtue of, of the war in Syria, although there are mm-hmm. other reasons. And there's just the brute fact that 100% of jihadists are Muslim, right? These are not the Amish, they're not the Scientologists, they're not the Anglicans. If you take a community of Muslims from Syria or Iraq or any other country on earth and place them in the, the heart of Europe, you are importing, by definition, some percentage, however small, of radicalized people or people who will be prone to radicalism at some future date where they just decide to start watching too many Anwar al-Awlaki videos. You know, it's just, and this again, this only happens to Muslims or people who are likely to become Muslim, right? So you see this this massacre in the the Christmas market, and I think many people will feel, what is the fucking point of having more Muslims in your society? It seems perfectly rational to say, we don't want any more. We have enough, right? And certainly increasing the percentage is not a help to anyone who loves freedom of speech and anything else, that any, any of the other liberal values that you and I just spoke about mm. maximizing. Mm. It's not worth the trouble. And if we can figure out some way to keep yeah. the number of Muslims down in any society, whether we're honest about this or whether we do this covertly, Clearly, it's rational to want to do this, and this is this is where someone like Robert Spencer would say, "Amen." I would I would presume. Mm. Can you speak to that despair? And I mean, yeah. the, again, this is not this is not an expression of xenophobia. This is an expression of the implication of statistics and the fact that it's only rational not to want to live in a world that looks more and more like Jerusalem at the height of the Intifada, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, yes, a few points. First of all, it's not irrational. It's not even inhuman for people to react that way. Uh, I think that the very, take the political left, the very people that they're defending against the the rising anti-immigrant sentiment, so the immigrants, um, if in their own countries, also react that way when when others come to their countries. It's a very human response. People like familiarity, people like uh, a a sense of predictability around their environment and the culture that they expect others to adhere to because it provides that familiarity and predictability in engagements. That's very, it's a very human trait. And there's a danger that that ideologues on the left are uh, in denial uh, about what is essentially a very human trait. Now, that doesn't mean because it's a human trait, you know, we, by the way, I believe genuinely that we evolved as human animals by being scared of that which we didn't know, mm. uh, or, or as somebody, I think, I suppose the populist anti-Islam lobby would say, actually, we're scared of something we do know, and we understand perfectly Islam and what it is, and that's why we're scared of it. But either way, it's point being, it's, it's, it's perfectly in tune and in harmony with our human evolution to be scared of that which isn't us. Um, whether we know it to not be us or, right. or we're scared of it because we're ignorant of it, it, it's perfectly normal and natural. Now, ideologues... But but let me just say, that's true, and I think the left is too blind to that variable, but that's not at all what I'm expressing. I mean, so for instance, I am deeply multicultural in my yeah. my affinities. You know, if you, if you tell me that there's a 
a family from India that's going to move into my neighborhood tomorrow and open a great Indian restaurant within walking distance of my house, I will be ecstatic. That difference is all to the good. What I worry about is bad beliefs that are yeah, operative, that's right. right? That's right. And so that's, that's the, the concern. So to the specific point that somebody like you is concerned of, this debate happened in the UK um, a while back among the left. Um, and there were people such as the author David Goodhart, who perhaps you should have on your show, by the way, on your podcast, mm. um, who uh, was a leading thinker of the left, was in fact uh, at one stage head of Demos, uh, who, which was Tony Blair's think tank. Um, and um, he uh, has written a book on this very subject, a liberal critique of multiculturalism and where it went wrong. And now he works for the policy exchange think tank, which is a center-right think tank, though he maintains his, uh, I imagine he maintains his center-left views, except on this question that you're raising. Um, and one of the, one of the intellectual change, changes that happened in, in, in those years among some of the left thinkers uh, in the UK was around this point, this very point about the distinguishing between values uh, and people uh, who happen to be brown from a different country, and actually it's the values we're interested in. And I think there is, a, there is a credible case to be made for not rushing into the speed of immigration so that society has time to absorb and that those people who are new arrivals have time to absorb the values of the country that they've come to live in. And that needs to happen organically and at a pace that is comfortable for everyone. Angela Merkel and what she did with the open door policy, now the infamous open door policy, was the biggest mistake she could have made. And in this is how those on the political left are their own worst enemies. Not only has it cost her politically, it's led to the very thing that she uh, has fought all her life, probably, and that is now the rise of, uh, of, of uh, the far right in, in Germany. Uh, because that's the easiest way to hand a victory to your political opponents. It's by doing in excess the very thing that is going to uh, fuel their rise by providing them with things to point to, to say, see, we told you so. Mm. And that's where liberals can be their own worst enemies. I think there's a case to be made for a controlled and paced immigration and, and not at the speed that Angela Merkel and those who would support that kind of policy would argue it's self-defeating. And the third thing it does is destroy the European Union. If people who are on the political left Remainers, as we call them in the UK, those who wanted to remain in the European Union before the Brexit vote happened, genuinely care about the European Union, then the best way to destroy it is by continuing along the lines of Angela Merkel. That's the best and the quick, I can assure you, just as I predicted Trump winning in the United States, the easiest way to, to encourage France to leave the European Union uh, and then knock and affect Italy and other countries, Austria, is in this way, where we keep doing what Angela Merkel did with her immigration policy from Syria. It's the quickest way mm. to destroy it. All it takes is one or two in each of these countries, uh, Berlin attackers, you know, and people will start voting far right. And uh, in the Europe's case, by the way, it genuinely is far right parties. Um, it's not, you know, I don't think Trump's far right. And I, I really don't like it when people call him a Nazi or a fascist. And I was vehemently against him. I've been on CNN calling him a presidential troll before he won. But it's unfair to call him a Nazi. But there are genuine white supremacists out there that will seek to capitalize on this electorally. And Europe has a history of that. Mm. And that's something we should always keep an eye out for and, and not actually underestimate. And so the easiest way to have them come to power is by the left adopting the sorts of immigration policies that Angela Merkel adopted. I, I believe in a paced, controlled, measured 
uh, and uh, and long-term immigration policy. I think our countries need immigrants. They economically survive on migration. But I think that there's a cost to culture that is associated just for cheap labor. And, and that cost to culture, uh, if the Brexit vote and the Trump vote taught us anything, is it, it's something I've been saying for a long time. We cannot continue to ignore the cost to culture that it has. Uh, and if we do, there'll be a backlash. Yeah. Two reactions to that on, on, on either side. One, there's the obvious concern that controlling the pace, it sounds like a, a nice thing to do, certainly given the actual aftermath. But the reality is that means keeping some considerable number of people out and in limbo, you know, in refugee camps or elsewhere. And that, that gets paid for in the lives of women and children and, and you know, non-combatants fleeing a civil war. So there's death on that side of the balance, or at least misery. So it's, it's easy to see how compassionate people who are not aware of the cost of bringing in too many people from a, a foreign culture who can't assimilate they will recoil from that. Just, you, can't, you, you can't do this on the backs of children. Any left winger listening, if they haven't learned the lesson by now that by adopting an Angela Merkel policy, the right wing will come to power, I don't know what to say to them. Look at Brexit. Right. Look at Trump. Please, for, for the sake of everything and all the principles you care of, take stock. Stop being so dogmatically ideological and realize that what you are, the facilitators to the right wing, those right wing you rail against and go out on the streets and protest against, even when Trump wins by the rules of this democracy, and you start rioting, you are the instruments of his victory. By, by continuing in this way, you're doing nothing but allowing the right wing to come to power. And actually, if you care genuinely about liberal uh, center-left politics, then the only option is to be measured in the way we behave so that we don't, um, we don't become the tools of the right wing coming to power. By the way, this cannot be done in the way Obama did it. Right. Uh, this touches directly on your question. Yep. If you're going to do what I'm saying, then it needs to be coupled with a policy of solving the problem in those countries, right? And that means Syria, for example. If, if you're going to take the view that we can't cater for all of the world's problems, which is a statement of the obvious um, in America, America can't absorb the problems of every single country in the world domestically, then you've got to have a policy that helps fix those problems in the countries where they occur. Otherwise, you will see these migration flows and you will see war on your borders. And that means a bit more of an interventionist approach. It doesn't mean going all full-on neoconservative. Mm. I opposed the Iraq war, as I believe you did too, Sam. Actually, I, I was not quite so virtuous, but I, I simply confessed ignorance about it. I didn't know what to think about it at the time. All right. Well, I opposed it, and, but then I have the excuse of being an Islamist. I would, would have opposed <laughs> yes. it, you know. Um, so, but, you know, it, it doesn't mean going full-on neoconservative. It means, it means taking... You know, uh, not every intervention is bad. Uh, it, it, taking that kind of line that actually, you know, Rwanda and Kosovo, you know, it wasn't a bad thing to be involved right. in, in those things. And, and, and actually a lack of action can also mean a, a, a human death toll to the scale that we currently see in Syria. And it, so it means taking a legal, proportionate and humanitarian grounded approach to foreign policy as well. Right. And that's where Obama went wrong. And I was so disappointed with his track record in the Middle East. To take the other side of that, and this would echo the kinds of things that our mutual friend Douglas Murray would say, yes, countries in Europe need immigration, the aging populations, and there's obvious labor shortages. But the reality is, is that Germany can take immigrants from Spain and Portugal, where there's a high level of, of youth unemployment. So That's right. And obviously, the assimilation problems there are minuscule compared to a country like Syria or Iraq. And 
there's just this, this fundamental concern, which ironically, perhaps someone like Shadi Hamid would probably agree with, is that once you get a sufficient percentage of Muslims in any society, the character of that community, by virtue of, of the religious doctrine at the foundation, the character of that community begins to change, which is to say that the identity politics that you can predict being activated in that community, which will become more and more powerful as you move from 1% to 5% to 10%, once you get to something like 25%, well, then you will have a call for Islamism that will be irresistible because there'll be enough people who want it. It's just a, a formula for religious oppression getting enough Muslims in your society, however they got there originally. And that, I think that's something that somebody like Robert Spencer, obviously, but even someone like Douglas Murray would be concerned about just generically, that you just, you can't have too many Muslims in your, in your culture if you want it to remain enlightened. Mm, mm. Well, I think that you've got to, obviously, this comes back to our conversation and our collaboration. You've got to look at Islam today versus Islam yesterday and Islam tomorrow. So at the moment, there's a serious problem with integrating those Muslims who are even born and raised in Britain. Yeah let alone bringing others uh, in, right? And this is what I mean by pace and measuring. If we're failing, and when I say failing, uh, I speak here as some, this is a liberal crit critique of what happened in 90s era multi multiculturalism. The first people we are failing are those very communities we claim we're seeking to help. Uh, when we talk about on every metric of the definition of failure in a society, Muslims are overperforming in the UK. Look at prison populations. Uh, Muslims are roughly three to five percent of the UK general population, mm. and they're around triple that in prisons. Right, right. Uh, education falling behind. They are falling far behind on education, on employment, uh, on language skills, English language skills. And so, w when we look at that, and you, you know, we talk often about post-truth and post-fact, and we imagine those things to be synonymous with the alt-right. Unfortunately, those on the ideological left can be as post-truth and as post-fact as, as they claim the alt-right are. Let's th let the facts guide us. The, the facts are that, I'm very familiar with the UK context, that on every metric, Muslims are underperforming. And so we, are, we haven't even been able to get integration right with those born and raised in the UK at the moment. That's why it's so important now to step back, take stock, be a bit more measured in our approach to immigration, and let's first fix the domestic situation for the sake of those Muslims themselves. Right. You know, let's first fix it for them. They deserve social mobility. They deserve jobs. They deserve speaking the English language. Uh, they deserve not being in prison. They deserve high levels of education. Why does everyone else deserve that and not them? And so we actually owe them a duty to say, you know, let's first fix this problem. And, and actually, frankly, if we continue at the pace we're going at the moment and we continue kind of with the Angela Merkel style policy of being blind to this problem, and there is a problem, the facts tell us there's a problem. Uh, as I said, we will be the instruments that bring about the destruction of the European Union as we know it, uh, and will actually bring about uh, the rise of the right wing in each country. And, and that's something which, you know, if you talk about collaborators, if you talk about sellouts and the kind of, kind of language that the left wing uses, they're the ones who actually ironically are engaged in that very process of bringing the far right to power with these sorts of policies where they're blind to the dangers of, of that approach. Yeah, yeah. Well, I've long been worried about the left being essentially the midwife to fascism here because yeah. of its, its blindness. I think that is being borne out. Paradoxically, I think you're, you are less worried about Trump than most people are, at least most people on the left are. Yeah. 
Yeah, so I'm, you know, everything we've just spoken about is why I think Trump came to power, right? Um, it's why I think Brexit happened. It's why I think the referendum was lost in Italy. Uh, the socialist candidate lost the referendum. It's why I think the party that was founded by the Nazis nearly won in Austria. Mm. And, you know, I don't say this as hyperbole. A party that was founded by those who survived Nazism, who were members of the Nazis, founded a party. It nearly won in yeah. Austria. And, you know, it, it's why what's going on is going on, right? And so uh, uh, we've, we've got to... We've got to take stock of that. It's all related to the way that the left has been blind to some of the consequences of their own behavior. The identity politics, the name calling, calling everyone a racist or an Uncle Tom or a native informant just because they don't see eye to eye. Compiling lists, you know? Um, it's the political horseshoe theory. If you go far left enough, you end up just like the very fascists and the, and the Nazis that you're claiming you're fighting against. Now, Trump comes in. I'm slightly... So where I am on Trump is, clearly I didn't support him. I don't like Hillary Clinton either. I mean, I, if I were an American citizen, I would have voted for the Democrat Party and not for Hillary Clinton as a, as a candidate. But just because I happen to be somebody who shares the values of the Democrat Party, I would have been forced to vote uh, Democrat for the party um, and to empower the party in Congress and the Senate. But, but uh, I'm less worried than liberals and the left are about Trump, and I'm less jubilant than Trump supporters are. You know, I'm somewhere between them when it comes to the Trump presidency. I'm less jubilant than the Trump supporters are because clearly I wouldn't have voted for Trump. And, you know, I, some of the things that he is, he stands for, I wouldn't agree with. Abortion rights being a prime example of it or environmental climate change being another. Um, but I'm less worried. And the reason I'm less worried uh, than those, especially on the left are, is that, you know, you have here in the U.S. a constitution. You have the separation of powers enshrined in that constitution. and uh, And you have... Uh, uh, the people Trump surrounded himself by. Uh, th let's start with the Constitution. It's not constitutional to compile a registry that, uh, that singles out one denomination, one faith denomination. I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, I think it's, all, it's just all rhetoric that Trump isn't going to be able to do even if he wants it to do. Um, that, that, that deals with some of what he said. Um, the separation of powers uh, means that, you know, though clearly the Senate and, and the House are currently Republican, you've still got the Supreme Court as well. There are certain things that have to happen for Trump to fulfill some of his most outlandish promises. And I think that actually even half of the Republicans are, you know, as demonstrated by the fact they didn't back him uh, for president, are, you know, a bit cautious about some of what he said. And so, you know, you've got people like Lindsey Graham and others who, who and Senator McCain, who are quite prominent, prominent within the Republican Party, who aren't fully on board with everything Trump promises and, and some of his more outlandish statements. So I think the separation of powers also uh, will kick in. And then it's the people he's surrounded himself by. You know, some of them are abysmal. Mm. But if you look at, by all accounts, people like uh, General Mattis. Yeah. Um, you know, he, I've met um, Petraeus, General Petraeus, on a couple of occasions. And Mattis co-authored the book with Petraeus on how to defeat Al-Qaeda in Iraq and the counterinsurgency. He is a genuinely strategic, scholarly mind, uh, despite what his namesake, Mad Dog Mattis, implies. He's actually... Uh, you know, that's just military bravado, but he actually is a, a thinker. He's a military strategist. Yeah. And, and somebody like that heading up defense, you know, I, I just think that Trump as a businessman understands one thing to succeed. You have to surround yourself by people who know what they're doing better than you may know in that portfolio. And that's certainly what I try and do at Quilliam. You know, my CEO, Harris Rafiq, is somebody who's older than me, um, has a lot more life experience, but is genuinely also good at what he does. Um, and actually, you've got to have that ability as someone who wants to succeed in a, in a kind of a private entity, 
to, uh, to allow, have the ability to delegate and allow people who are better than you at doing what they do, get on with it. And I think that that's what one thing Trump's probably picked up from business. Uh, uh, some of his appointments may not be the best, but I think he's surrounded by enough good people um, that I think this ship will steadily sail forward uh, and nothing <laughs> too much, too, nothing too significant will change. I don't think he's going to ban abortion, though he says he will. Uh, I, I don't think he's going to uh, create a registry. I don't think that's constitutional. Um, and, you know, I think also, by the way, I think he's going to be in for two terms, which isn't good for someone like me, but uh, I think that's just what's going to happen. Right. He's going to be in for two terms, and it will take that long for the Democrats to get their act together. Um, and if they continue playing the identity politics game, they'll make it easy for him to stay in two terms. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah. That's where I am on Trump. I, you know, I, I think those reasons are, they, they kind of, you know, make me... Uh, Sit, sit, but I'm clearly not somebody who supported him, but I don't, don't think it will be as bad as those people out rioting on the streets seem to think. And I just think that's a particularly petulant and childish behavior. And so with respect to foreign policy, do you see the likely changes being good or, or bad, or there's just not enough information? Yeah, know? let's see what happens. I think he, I, I would prefer he, seeing him what he's doing to Putin to do to China instead. I don't think it's wise to antagonize China, and I don't think it's wise to appease Putin. Mm. I, I think he should be doing the opposite. He should be trying to uh, bring the Chinese into the world order um, and, uh, uh, and get them on board with uh, capitalism and with market forces and with democracy. And I think that Putin, who has, uh, frankly, the truth is, as Obama said, he has an economy smaller than you know, some European countries, Italy, for example, um, he, Putin just needs to be shown that, that the way he's carrying on doesn't come with rewards. That's not the sort of behavior you reward, really. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I just had Gary Kasparov on the podcast, and we spoke almost entirely about Putin. The scary thing there is that Trump, who is willing to talk on both sides of almost any issue, has said only positive things about Putin. And Putin yeah. is, is someone who it's very difficult to only say positive things about. I mean, the man is clearly a thug who jails and almost certainly kills some of his political opponents and journalists he doesn't like. He is someone who has managed to pretend to be a statesman and has been enabled both by high oil prices and the collaboration of Western Democrats. You know, multiple American administrations and European administrations have treated him like a Democrat himself, and he's clearly not one, though they, they hold elections there. So it's, it's a little scary to just not know how deep Trump's ties with Russia run. And, you know, he didn't release his tax returns. We have no idea how beholden he is to Russian banks or, or to any of the oligarchs in his business dealings. And then he is quite strangely appointed a bunch of people who have explicit ties to Russia. And in his Secretary of State pick Ooh. is perhaps someone who is more tied to Russia than, than almost anyone who can be named in the private sector. And so it's, it's a bit of a mystery what's going on there because we just simply don't have the information. But Kasparov was, felt that it's, a, it's an ominous mystery. You know? <laughs> Trump might be doing a bit of a uh, Sam Harris, Majid Nawaz, Islam and the Future of Tolerance dialogue with Putin. He might be hoping for some form of, you know, let's see Putin at the other end of this and come out as a liberal or something. But no, I, I'm as, as miffed by all this as you are, Sam. I don't know what Trump's playing out with Putin. I have every respect for Gary Kasparov. The man hosted me for his Oslo Freedom Forum where I spoke. 
Um, and since then, I've been we've been following each other on social media, mm. and uh, and I see him uh, uh, speak uh, to a, in a in a very similar way to you and I on this stuff. You know, he's somebody who strikes a, a very good balance uh, between being a foreign policy hawk and just being somebody who's burying their head in the sand and pretending that, that the big bad world out there doesn't exist. And, um, and you know, he's a liberal who's consistent on his human rights stances. And I would really encourage your listeners to take a man like that and what he says about Russia very, very seriously. Because mm. whenever on my LBC radio show I, I open up this subject of Putin, I am astounded at the number of pro-Putin callers from within the UK who consider themselves patriots, patriots and right-wing and Brexiters who put Britain's interests first, and yet they call up and they defend Putin. And I say to them, you guys call yourself patriots. Well, Winston Churchill would be ashamed of you because our security services and Whitehall and our government has just uh, this month released for the first time that they believe that they are engaged in a propaganda war. This is now official, an official UK government Whitehall uh, uh, view that they're engaged in a propaganda war against Putin, who has been attempting to sway the election uh, in favor of Scottish independence to break up the United Kingdom and to sway it in the favor of Brexit to break up the European Union uh, and to continue through his state sponsored media platforms. I won't even call them news, like Russia Today and Sputnik, where he's set up and they broadcast specifically for the purpose of bringing about political change uh, in Western countries. Uh, to the point where our security services are now saying that they are you know, really going to have to consider reallocating resources to fight Putin's propaganda war. And yet people that consider themselves patriots are defending uh, a foreign power interfering in our national debate. Yeah, and it's, it's happening among Republicans now in the U.S. I cited this poll with Gary, but it used to be a few short years ago, 2014, that only 10% of Republicans had a favorable view of Putin. That's, that's up to 37% now. Mm. And you have Trump and many Republicans just disavowing our intelligence services because they, they make the claim that you just made, that Putin has been engaged in, a, in both cyber espionage and, and a propaganda war trying to sway the election. I mean, it would have been so easy for Trump to have taken the obvious ethical and honest line here and just say, listen, any involvement by a foreign power in our election is to be condemned. And I don't want Putin's help. The man is not a Democrat functioning by principles that I recognize. And I'll, I'll have to deal with him if I become president. But an attempted hack of the election and fake news and all the rest is unacceptable. And, and I want no part of it. I mean, he could he could say that without losing anyone, right? But he he he's not only not said that he has disavowed the CIA, the FBI, and ignored the reports from the rest of the world where where this is also happening. It's not just the UK; it's other countries in Europe yeah, that yeah. have had their elections meddled with by Russia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's denying what cannot be denied, and that that's what makes it seem fairly sinister. And even on the hacking scandal, you know, it makes. No sense. What he could have said and really just uh, absolved himself of appearing complicit is to say, okay, there should be an investigation because you can pass two things here. You can separate the idea that Putin attempted to influence the presidential election from the other idea that he actually succeeded in doing so. Right. And so Trump could have said, look, let's have an investigation because 
He may have attempted to, but I don't believe, you know, that my win is down to Putin alone. But if he did attempt to, then that's a breach of our national security that we need to know about. Exactly. You know, I don't, you know and it's, 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 it's a no-brainer to, yeah. to arrive at that position. Uh, yeah. and, and yet he hasn't. He's just denied the whole thing and refused to look into it as a matter of priority for an investigation. And, and run the, the considerable risk of alienating our intelligence services in the process. I mean, he's just defamed the CIA and the FBI by doing this. And it's, it's amazing that he would split the baby that way, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and so that suggests some weird connection to Putin that is kind of an, an unmovable object in his world. Yeah, it's strange, isn't it? But then again, people aren't thinking rationally. It's like, you know, you've got your campaign slogan, make America great again, take our country back, which is the same with Brexit in the UK. We want uh, British sovereignty back. And yet uh, you've got clear evidence of a, of a person that's uh, attempting to influence that sovereignty and influence taking your country back by taking it for themselves. And suddenly your patriotism goes out the window. And, and, and then they're disputing this clear evidence. But I, for the life of me, can't understand since when did self-avowed uh, right-wing patriots uh, suddenly decide that their military and their military intelligence isn't to be supported? You know, fine. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm used it's to hearing... It's incredible. It's just yeah. absolutely incredible. I'm used to hearing that from the, you know, Glenn Greenwald left, yeah. right? Which these guys have been critical of for those very reasons. You know, and and yet you know suddenly so Snowden and all of that what happened suddenly suddenly it's it's forgiven and forgotten when the same people that were considered believed him to be a traitor for sharing national secrets with Russia are now defending Putin, mm. and the only thing I can think of is that they've lost their rational abilities to think through this in a logical way, and they're thinking emotionally because they hate Hillary Clinton, and and I can understand how that happens on a human level. Uh, people often and all the time in daily life stop thinking rationally about things. In families, it happens all the time because emotions get in the way. But, you know, we've got to be able to understand it for what it is. This is, uh, this is not normal. This is not, a rational, this is not rational behavior. Yeah. Not that it matters at this point, but I think it might be interesting to, as a final topic here to do a brief postmortem on Clinton's candidacy with respect to this single variable of Islam and terrorism. Because I, I, I'm very in touch with this, the, the single-issue voter who was absolutely aghast that I would support Clinton over Trump, mm. given the degree to which Clinton was compromised by a seeming fondness or at least blindness to Islamism. The evidence there is there for the asking. So the donations to the Clinton Foundation from the Saudis and other Islamist regimes Huma Abedin being her right-hand woman and Huma's mother being a clear Islamist. The fact that she could never utter an honest word about the link between doctrine and jihadism. Mm. So in the immediate aftermath of the Orlando shooting, all she spoke about was gun control and the threat of Islamophobia, the fear that people would become more bigoted against innocent Muslims in the aftermath of this. So there are people who I have lost a fair number of fans, I think, over my criticism of Trump and my, my tepid endorsement of Clinton as the lesser of two evils because of this issue. She was so bad on this issue. Now, in my view, I felt that she always knew where to fly her drones, right? She was, if anything, more hawkish than many liberals would be comfortable with, and perhaps even more hawkish than Trump would be or will be because of things she said like, we need a no-fly zone in Syria. 
Mm. Much hay was made over the fact that Trump claimed to have opposed the Iraq war, where she didn't, right? So there, there's a kind of isolationist side to the, the alt-right, which Clinton was cutting against. So you really can't have it both ways. Is she, is she too eager to kill Islamists or Muslims in general, or is she too in bed with them? But in any case, I, I felt that she, she was just lying about her views about the link between Islamism and Islam as, as a set of doctrines for political reasons. But I was never worried that she herself was a, an especially useful idiot for Islamists. And I just want you to say what you think in that regard. Yeah, no, I think a, a lot of um, where she was on this subject uh, and where Secretary Kerry may even be, it was held back by Obama himself. Um, and I think actually the problem began there. It began with Obama mm. and, and, and his, uh, not only his uh, uh, lack of action when it came to Syria or the Islamist and jihadist extremism problem, but even his inability to name it. And I think that's where the problem began, and it continued, went through Hillary Clinton's tenure as Secretary of State, and it continued through to Secretary of State Kerry, where he, um, by many accounts, wanted to do more and was stopped by Obama. Uh, so I, I tend to agree with you that um, she certainly wouldn't have been uh, uh, in the way that Obama was, a disaster for uh, the rise of uh, jihadists and, uh, and, and the fact that they were able to rise uh, under his watch. Uh, I think that she would have been slightly more hawkish in that regard in Syria. Uh, I think also uh, she probably wouldn't have allowed herself to be used as much as he allowed himself in the end to be used by Islamist lobbies. Um, you know, I, I think probably if it wasn't for Obama as a sitting president, she probably would have said radical Islam or something thereabouts. You know, I, I say Islamist extremism and the Islamist ideology, but she probably would, and she actually in reality did say it once, uh, but it was almost like a kind of a squeezed in between a sentence in passing. And she said, she said radical jihadism. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, it's an oxymoron, but, right. you know. Um, but in the sense that I think, therefore, if, if I think she just didn't want to undermine her own president because she needed him to back her in the, in the presidential race knowing that he was more popular than she was among Democrats. And so I think that was the thing there, that if it wasn't for Obama in office, she probably would have been a bit more clearer on some of this stuff. My concerns were other than that. I, I, I just found her on a personal level to be off-putting, uh, you know, optically, uh, her body language, uh, that kind of fake smile that always seemed to be plastered on her face, which other politicians seem to be able to get away with a bit more naturally than she seemed uh, to be able to. And then if you start looking at beyond the superficial to some of what she did and some of the, uh, you know, whether it's the donations to her foundation that you mentioned, which smacked to me less of uh, being in the Islamist pockets, but more just uh, that she had absolutely no morals when it came to where she took her money from right. and, um, and therefore greed. Uh, when you look at the email scandal and the, and the way in which she disregarded national security um, for, for her emails, when you look at also, I think, perhaps um, the substance and, and the way she campaigned, she spent most of her time attacking Trump uh, than, than actually speaking for what she stood for. And I think for these and many, many other reasons, she was a, a very bad candidate. And, and I say that with evidence that if you can't defeat probably the worst suited candidate that the Republican Party has ever put forward for president in a landslide, uh, it's not enough that you win the popular vote. If you can't defeat that type of candidate, somebody I once described as an orange buffoon, if you can't defeat that candidate in a landslide, that says more about you than it does about anyone else. 
Uh, it would be a disaster for the Democrats to reselect her. Yeah. I think she should now retire and step away and keep out of politics. And I think the Democrat Party needs an interim period, where, as we've discussed, I've, I've said somebody like Keith Ellison could be the kind of Ariel Sharon. You know, it took the Ariel Sharon to withdraw from Gaza and keep his hawkish uh, military right-wing elements on board with him. I think uh, the left is no less hawkish when it comes to their own dogma. And it takes, I think, somebody who's come from them to try and rein them in. But that's, a, that's an interim period. I think the Democrat Party needs to find a new leader, which can't be Keith Ellison, and it can't be Hillary Clinton. It needs to be a new uh, presidential candidate who, uh, who, who, who understands liberalism truly in its universal sense and, and begins to try and unite the left behind, um, behind universal liberalism. Actually, one final topic I'd like to touch because you just raised it, and I just want to hear a little bit more of your thinking here. Just how bad has Obama been, in your view, with respect to his foreign policy in the Middle East and the rise of ISIS, the red line in Syria? I mean, just, just how consequential has all of that been? Let's start with this. I'm not aware of any Middle East pundit, whether on the left or the right, who specializes and follows Middle Eastern affairs, who is proud of Obama's record there. Um, unless you've drunk the State Department Kool-Aid, Take someone like Shadi Hamid or Hamid, uh, forgive me, I, I, because they're both names and I'm not sure which one it is. Um, but, but take Shadi. Mm. Um, he is at Brookings, the archetypal, you know, uh, Democrat supporting guy. And, and he's on your podcast has been very critical of uh, Obama and yeah, his yeah. policy. And then, of course, the right wing has anyway. Um, the, it's been an utter disaster, his foreign policy in the Middle East. It's been a, a total mess. And if we want to blame Bush... For the, for, for the mess that was the Iraq war and say that that was his legacy and was Tony Blair's legacy, and rightly so, we, we say that was their legacy and it was, a, it was a mess, then we cannot escape the fact that, that Obama was president for eight years and into that, in that eight years came ISIS, uh, came the, the terrible civil war that was in, uh, in Syria, the humanitarian disaster that it caused with the refugee flows and the breakup, therefore, as a direct consequence of the European Union. And that is Obama's legacy in foreign policy terms. Mm. Uh, domestically, I'm not an expert on US domestic policies. What I would say is that certainly, if under the first black president, racism and, and, and racial tensions uh, under these last eight years have risen to what nobody can deny is an uncomfortable high, uh, then uh, that also has to be associated with his legacy. He cannot escape that. Um, and so, you know, maybe history will look kinder upon him as it does with all presidents. But right now, I can tell you as somebody who follows uh, Islamism, jihadist terrorism, and follows the Middle East uh, very closely, um, I'm unaware of any independent pundit who's happy with Obama's record there. It really is tragic because when you look at the man himself, I don't know if you're a similar fan of who he is or who he seems to be, but he seems like exactly the sort of person who could have done a good job here on both fronts. He is an intelligent, thoughtful, wise, disciplined man by all signs. I don't know him. I've never met him. But it seems like he, he's, he's the antithesis of, of who Trump seems to be. Mm. And yet his failures, especially with respect to foreign policy, have been so egregious. It seems a kind of new Vietnam syndrome with respect to foreign intervention. I just think I think his primary commitment was to get out of what he considered unnecessary or, or fruitless wars. And so we have to get out of Afghanistan, we have to get out of Iraq, and 
under no circumstances was he going to go on any other misadventure in the Middle East. And so the red line in Syria was just a bluff. And then we had all the, the knock-on effects that you mentioned. It's terrible. It's and unjustifiable. And anyone who still defends Obama's track record in the Middle East, I've got to say, you know, I said they've, they've drunk the State Department Kool-Aid. I mean, they, they, they have just, it, it's just sheer dogma at this point. If we were going to, as I say, judge Bush by, by the legacy of what he left in Iraq with that disastrous invasion, then it's inescapable. Obama's legacy is ISIS in the Middle East. That is inescapable. Yeah. And domestically, I just want to say, you know, when it, I mentioned racism, and it's something I've been engaged with most of my life, and so it's important to me. But there's a there's a fantastic article in the National Review by one Thomas Sowell, yeah, published July the ninth, twenty thirteen, and it, it's interesting to me because it cites a poll, um, and it talks about domestic race relations, a, a Rasmussen poll that found that thirty one percent of blacks think that most blacks in America are racist compared to only 24% of blacks who think that most whites are racist, right? right? So they think more blacks are racist than whites these days. And then- This is in 2013, this article. Yeah, yeah, this is in 2013. And then if you compare that same poll and it gauged white opinion, the same poll found that 38% of whites considered most blacks racist, while they only considered 10% of their fellow white people racist. And so you're telling both on the, on the black and the white side, they both think more blacks are racist than whites. And, and then you look at the racial tensions that have arisen and the nature of identity politics, as you and I have spoken about, and you think, again, domestically, Obama cannot escape that legacy, that what he should have done is what you and I are trying to do in the Islamism debate, is show a bit of leadership, take a bit of criticism from your own, right, and go out there and just show the way. It, as the most powerful man, not only in the country, but in the world, and happening to be an African-American, you could have gone in there when at the peak of the racial tensions and shown a bit of leadership to say to people, look, you know, here's a moral way forward, a bit of a Martin Luther King moment. Mm. That, 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 but, but actually what we were met with instead was a, a bit of a cold silence towards a lot of that tension and almost as if he just didn't want anything to do with that debate. And the result was, of course, he got worse and worse and worse. Um, and that's where I will, I, I say I'm not an expert in domestic policy, but I have been engaged with racism and race issues for most of my life. And I think that in particular, that aspect of his domestic legacy, it does trouble me. Uh, but I will say with a level of confidence that his uh, track record in the Middle East has been uh, just terrible, abysmal. Well, we've got to the two-hour mark here, Majid. I'm, I'm going to let it stay there, but no doubt it will be an interesting four years, hopefully not too interesting, but there'll be a lot to comment on going forward. And your work is, as we've mentioned, not close to done. So your voice will be on the podcast again, I'm, I'm convinced. Looking forward to it. And I should say, before we sign off, that you have a radio show now that you're doing. Are you doing this once a week? Is that it? Twice a week. So I, I, all your listeners, I encourage them to listen in, actually. If you're yeah. interested in the state of affairs when it comes to Islamist extremism, to get the latest uh, of my views on that, on identity politics, on the control left and the alt-right, um, and on everything that sorts of things we've been talking about, or just UK domestic politics, which um, fascinates a lot of people because of the Brexit climate that we're in at the moment, then tune in. It's every Saturday and every Sunday um, uh, in the UK from midday to 3 p.m., which is 7 a.m. East Coast time. And you can listen from wherever you are because there's an app that you can get on your mobile phone um, from lbc.co.uk on your iPhone and Android, which you just mm. download. And it just, as long as you've got a 3G signal, 
you can listen to it from wherever you are. It's a, and it's a call-in show, so people can call in and stuff. Well, I, I kind of set this, you know, I, I wax lyrical for 15 minutes on the topic of the day, whether it's Putin or whether it's, you know, uh, uh, the control left or it's Islamist extremism. I kind of set the, the topic and give my view, lay out my stall, and then for 45 minutes of that hour, people call in and give their opinions, and then we switch topics for the second and third hours, respectively. Are you doing three hours both days? Yeah, three hours Saturday, oh, nice. three hours Sunday, yeah. Wow. Yeah, 7 a.m. Eastern time. And is it all archived? Can people listen to it after the fact, or is it only live? Yep, yep. There's a separate app for the podcast that you can download. So there's two apps. One where you can listen live, and right. there's a separate podcast app where you subscribe and you can hear the shows back from, you know, the backdated shows. And I'd love to have you on, Sam. You've got to come and join me on the, on the radio show. Sure, sure. And people can follow you on Twitter. You're often tweeting out excerpts and rather provocative excerpts from those shows. So remind me, what's your Twitter address? Yeah, it's Majid Nawaz, uh, at Majid Nawaz, M-A-A-J-I-D-N-A-W-A-Z. There's Facebook as well. It's either one. Well, listen, Majid, it's always a pleasure. You are not only a, a collaborator who I greatly admire, you are a friend and it is always galling to see you besmirched, but it is a, a pleasure to get a chance to defend you once again whenever that happens. So I have your back insofar as I see people taking shots at you. Sam, uh, forget collaboration, forget friendship. You are more a brother to me than any Islamist and certainly any jihadist out there. So thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to engage in a dialogue with you. It's been highly rewarding and I, and I hope to continue to be in touch for the rest of our lives. You're here, brother. Until next time.